But we're looking this week, again, at the second element of how they got things done and got along, and that is the idea of handling opposition. This morning, I want us to look at just one aspect of that, and that was Nehemiah's bold approach. Now, last week, we said very clearly to you that more than anything, when you're faced with opposition, you have to have the courage and the resolve not to give up, not to go back, not to come down off the works of God. Let me visually show you what we mean. Here's a clip from a great movie that we love. It's called Iron Will. And if you're ever wondering what we mean by don't ever give up and don't go back, perhaps this will come to your mind and you'll remember exactly what we mean by standing against opposition. It's 
think about hanging in there till the day we cross the finish line. And it's Jesus waiting for us. And he wraps his arms around us, you know. And he says, you made it. That makes me just really not want to give up. And we will encourage you not to give up. I had some members say to me this week, a couple of members say, you know, I had some things this week happen and I, I wanted to give up. But I said, I said to myself, I'm not going back. And I'm not coming down. What makes you have that kind of approach to opposition? What gives someone the endurance to plant their feet and not give in? Well, one of the aspects is what we call boldness. And I want to take you to Nehemiah chapter 4 and examine Nehemiah's bold approach. Tonight we'll look at his insightful approach. I want to talk about Nehemiah's backbone for a little bit as we wrap this up. Nehemiah chapter 4, you know, in verses 1 through 3, they were ridiculed. Look there with me. Fox to break down your wall. They were making fun of them. And in verse 4, Nehemiah prays to God. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't, you know, retort back to them and say, well, you know, a fox can break down my wall, but a mouse can break down yours. And, 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 and. He just starts praying to God. Look what he says. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. That word despised there means to have your, to be exposed, almost to be stripped away. Nehemiah felt like he was being exposed. He felt like they were ripping away and embarrassing him almost. He says, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Now, that's a tough prayer. You're probably thinking, wow, he's a pretty mad individual here. He says, do not forgive their iniquity. And let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. A weak person does not pray that kind of prayer, right? When was the last time you prayed to the enemies of God? Lord, I pray you will not forgive their sin. I pray you return their reproach against them. That's probably not a common supper time prayer, is it? This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. I think that there's some speculation here and some disagreement about what Nehemiah was feeling. Some felt he was venting and it wasn't right. Some feel um, that he was trying to call upon uh, other aspects of Old Testament law. I personally feel he was resting in God's promises to carry out his purposes and not seek personal revenge. I think this prayer is very biblical and scriptural for one reason. David prayed these as well. Now, the word imprecatory simply means to place, and forgive me here, to place a curse on someone. You imprecate someone. You pronounce a judgment upon them. In Psalm 5 and Psalm 54, David prayed several phrases such as, Lord, I pray that you will smite them. That they will be uh, torn down and smitten. How do you pray that? Let me tell you a couple of uh, reasons why. One is, when we sense God's purposes, His non-negotiable, fundamental purposes being thwarted, we should pray that He will take a stand against that. We should not pray for personal revenge, which is where most of us cross the line. Right? We say, well, I'll get back at them. And then we proceed to act in ways that get them back. 
The Bible says vengeance, that God said vengeance is mine, I'll repay. In other words, it's not your job to make the score even. But it is your job to pray that God's purposes will be accomplished. Let me give you an example. It is wrong to bomb abortion clinics. But it is not wrong to pray that God would shut down and dismantle the abortion industry. Are you with me? Abortion fundamentally, non-negotiably, biblically, goes against the very values that God establishes. We should not pray for peace. Forgive me. We should not pray that there will be understanding and negotiation. We should pray that their purposes will be thwarted. That God will reign. Are you with me? I believe we should pray imprecatory prayers against that situation. I do. We shouldn't go out to seek revenge, but we should pray that God, murder is happening against the unborn. Please, rise up. Do not allow this to happen. Go against it. Now, before you think that I'm way out in left field, I want to say to you that God does this. Say, really? Yeah. In James chapter 4, the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. Now, follow me here. But he resists the proud, right? Look it up, James 4. We think resist simply means like a zone defense. Okay, the proud come against God and he just holds them back. Oh, you're so proud, you're so strong, you're so materialistic and selfish, and I hope that you don't hurt what my kingdom stands for. That's not at all the biblical word for, for resist. Resist is better defined as a full court press. Now, Colleen, I know you didn't quite get the picks and double picks last week. Terry had to kind of tell you they were called screens back when y'all were growing up, right? Forgive me. You know what? God does not know of his own defense. To proud people, and you're not going to like this, but God's word clearly states, and this scares me, you ought to fear God. You ought to be afraid of a God that when you exhibit pride, he gets out of his uh, zone defense, and he, man to man, goes to a full court press to stop pride in your life. Out of six things God, God hates, yea, seven are an abomination, the Proverbs says. The number one on the list is what? A proud look. God does not take pride sitting down. It is in God's nature to thwart pride's purposes, to stop pride. It is, his, it is in his character to do so. Consequently, and specifically, when the abortion people begin to exhibit proud and haughty attitudes and actions that destroy life given by God, I will promise you, he takes action. And we should pray that he would. Some of our boldness comes from being able to pray to a God who takes action when his purposes are thwarted. That, that emboldens me. I don't know about you. It relieves me of having to feel like, okay, what can I do? I say, wait a second. I've got a God who controls the universe. I'll just pray to him. And in fact, I'll pray in a way that makes you kind of mad. And we start praying for God to take action against pride. God, go to an all-out full-court press. There are people... That I have prayed this against. I know my friends have prayed these prayers against people. When God's principles are clearly violated and there's pride in their life, 
I have prayed God do whatever it takes to bring them to a place of brokenness. Really? You say, well, Todd, the Bible says to pray for your enemies. I did. The Bible says love your enemies. I did, because love is desiring the highest good for someone's life. And the highest good, let's say, for the, let's say what I'm talking about here, would be for them to be broken and to come to God. I have a friend. His family split up a while ago. And I, my wife and I both prayed that God would break the wife's heart and bring pain and misery to her situation in her newfound affair. We were not going to call and send mean letters. We weren't going to email, you know, you little rat. But I did. we did pray, God, whatever it takes to keep this marriage together, even if it means pain in her life when she's not with you, bring it, do it. That's called imprecatory praying. Nehemiah did it. And you're uncomfortable. You're probably thinking, ooh, this is scary. But that's called boldness against opposition. Another aspect of Nehemiah's boldness came in verse 14. He says that we prayed to our God in verse 9, and they set up a guard. I'm going to talk more about this tonight. But basically, the, uh, they changed the plans, and they began to fight against the war. There was a threat of war against them, but it didn't work. The enemies kept threatening. And in verse 12, um, you see the Jews said ten times. This is very interesting here. Ten times. They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Now, there's a, the, what he's saying there is this. The Jews came to me time and time again saying, Nehemiah, you're not getting it. They're going to get us. They told us they're going to surprise attack us. They're going to. It's like over and over. Finally, Nehemiah says in verse 14, when I saw their fear, I love this verse. I rose and spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. You see, he's outnumbered here. He's a minority. But his boldness takes over. And he says, do not be afraid of them. He doesn't try to reason, does he? He doesn't say, well, I've talked to them. We've got a signed peace agreement. He just flat out says, hey, guys, quit being scared. Why? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Isn't that true? When we're afraid, we've forgotten God. Because God is not a spirit, has not given a spirit of fear, but when a power, love, and boldness sound mind, right? When we're afraid... We're not spirit-filled and God-led. Nehemiah said, guys, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I love this verse. You know why? Because Nehemiah could envision the potential loss of a heritage. If you get afraid and run away, if you go back to Egypt, yeah, in a few years you'll pass off the scene, but it's your sons. It's your daughters. What about the heritage God gave to Abraham? We can't give up. It's what I call an impassioned plea. There's no reason to an impassioned plea. There's no rhyme. There's no real psychology. It's just one man's vision and one man's spirit pleading with another person. Don't give up. When I think about my kids and the heritage that my dad gave me, and um, maybe you don't know a lot about me, but you know, I'll be honest with you, God is just bestowed his blessings on me that I don't even near deserve. But my mom's parents are really godly people. Well, they both passed where they were. My dad's folks and their folks. In fact, and, and I'm not saying this in a proud way, but just kind of give you an example of what I'm talking about. We don't know of any lost people on my side of the family. 
for generations. Now, that's not for me. That's because somewhere a great-grandfather ago, someone really began a real godly heritage. And they weren't going to raise any kids that just weren't sold out to God best they could. Kids make their own choices. I realize that. But God has put His anointing hand on, on our ancestry. I really believe that. And I can't explain it, though. I just don't know what it's like to pray for lost relatives. Now, maybe that makes me bad. I don't know. I'm just trying to be transparent with you. I know Julie's mom and dad are both godly Christians. She comes from a, a long line of just, just believers. Now, when I think about that, and I see four little stylesies scampering around, you know what my heart says? When trouble gets, comes along or things get tough, man, you better fight for your sons and your daughters. It's not a pressure point to me. It's not a load I carry around like, oh, I've got to give this heritage to my kid. It's like an honor to be the next in line to pass on a godly heritage. And I'll tell you, I don't want to break the chain. I don't live in fear and pressure of that. I look at it as an awesome responsibility to carry on a godly heritage. So that emboldens me to be very passionate with my kids. Two things about boldness. Imprecatory prayers and impassioned pleas. Together, you marry him. Here's what you come up with. A simple definition of boldness. Will you read this with me? It may be a little hard to see, but I think you might can read it enough. To read this out loud with me. Boldness is allowing the person, work, and or word of God to determine my actions instead of letting circumstances, emotions, or relationships control my reactions. Some of you are right there. Pick your toes up. We're going to stomp on them for a while. If you don't want to stomp on them, pick them up. Some of you are letting a relationship control your reactions. When you know full well what God's Word says about an issue or about a habit or about a relationship. And instead of being bold and saying, I'm going to obey God. You know what we do? We say, well, I think I'll just, I'll just hold off for a while. You like boldness. Forgive me. You like boldness. Nehemiah knew the character of God, that he would not abandon his people. He knew the word of God said to Abraham, the land is yours. You know what they made him do? He said, guys, let's pray that God will stop them. And hey, don't quit. It inspired boldness. And some of you know the very same thing about God and his word and his work. You know God's going to complete his work in you. He has redeemed you. He has saved you. He will not stop that work. He will build his church. He will take care of you. He takes care of the grass of the field. He'll take care of you. And yet, we continue in our weak and timid ways, don't we? I I know in my heart, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God's going to send some people from here to the mission field. I pray that every day. And I've told you that, Bob. We pray that way. I don't know who it is yet. I'm going to tell you, we'll, we'll stop that. Is letting other people and jobs and money in America control you instead of what you know God will do. You say, Todd, I couldn't quit my job. Why not? You think God worries about ching, ching, change, change, dollar, dollars? Todd, there's no way my kids wouldn't handle it if I moved. Really? How do you know? You're giving me all the reasons that you think you couldn't be bold and God's given you every reason why you should be bold. If you know what God has called you to do, if His Word and His work and His character stand the test of time, what are you waiting on? And it goes with, I believe there are people here who ought to break off relationships. 
and initiate new ones. Put our church to the test. That's right. Say to one of your elders, you know what? I'm lonely right now. I ended a relationship that was, that was wrong. But I know God will take care of me. I need your help. Put our elders to the test. Put our church on the line. I guarantee we'll be there for you. We're not asking you to step out on your own in some vast cavern of hopelessness. We're saying that we're here with you. That God is with you. Be bold. Back in 1994, Mother Teresa was asked to come to the National Prayer Breakfast. And dressed in her typical attire, she obviously stood out. And this is a traditional event. Hundreds of senators and congressmen and congresswomen attend, as well as the president and vice president. And that day was no different. Seated up near the platform, former Vice President Gore and his wife, and former President Clinton and his wife. And Mother Teresa began her speech. I've got part of it right here. She began in a usual way, and then she made this statement. I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. Well, you can imagine in that political arena, it was very quiet for about two seconds. And then on the right side of the auditorium, there began to be some applause, and then it just kind of started going around, and everyone began to applaud, except for about four people who were close to the front. President, former President Clinton, Hillary... Former President Al Gore and his wife sat there, didn't move, just looked at Mother Teresa, almost with a, with a face that was, how dare you bring that up? But it only got better. She went on to say this. In, in the face of the PC environment in that, in that room, she said abortion is really a war against the child. And I hate the killing of the innocent child. And if you've ever listened to her on tape or seen her, she's very soft-spoken. Ministered in Calcutta, any among the poor. She says it's murder by the mother herself. She didn't blame the doctors, did she? And if we accept that the mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? Wouldn't you love to be in that room? With someone of such, with such a moral compass as that, to speak such liberating and pointed truth. Any country, and I think this statement here was clearly directed at our president, because he's the leader of our country. She said, any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love one another, but to use violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. You may disagree with her theology at times, and you can say what you want to about Mother Teresa. But that lady was bold. What would you have done if you had an invitation to the National Prayer Breakfast? Would you have the courage to address the number one issue that is bringing our nation down? Or would you have said, well, I don't make anybody mad. I mean, they may not invite me back. Well, I don't want to. They may provide me a love offering. They may want to give me an honorarium. I better not. Or you have said, you know what? Here's the truth, people. She just spit it out. Let everybody look at it, didn't she? 
I love that speech. I love the picture that story emanates to us. Boldness. It's not the only type of boldness there is, though. You, too, can be bold. You know, in Joshua 24, uh, we're told that Joshua drew a line in the sand, so to speak, and he said to the children of Israel, As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. I want to say to you, men, you need to be bold in how you lead your family in their spiritual formation and commitments. Men, did you hear what I said? Be bold. I want, to, I want to say to you that Jim Hawkins taught me an interesting lesson recently. It's called the, the uh, law of the inevitability of gradualness. In other words, if you don't attend to things, they will gradually become worse. I guess you can call it the second law of thermodynamics. Maybe. I don't know. Just get worse. Your family and your kids will not naturally seek God. You don't. You have a natural bent away from Jehovah. And it takes bold leadership to raise a family in this society that honors the Word of God. And how dare you point at your wife and say, well, I don't know why she's not taking them to church. Let me explain a couple things about the words male and female. Can I do that with you? In the Hebrew language, the, the root meaning of male is hard. And the root meaning of female is soft. And there's lots of implications there. But I want to touch on one today. And that's this, that men, even in the definition of the word and the makeup of your being, you have been assigned and given the hard roles of life. I don't believe personally a woman is emotionally and physically made or designed to bear up under the trials that come in this life. Many do because they're forced to. I think about our single parents in this congregation. I don't want to name them all here. But we feel and will continue to feel a strong partnership with those, with those moms. I know yesterday we called them. We want to find out if they had their driveways plowed and how they were doing. That's our job. They don't have a man at home right now. We'll be that for them. I'll tell you something. They're, they're picking up where some man dropped the ball. But ideally, it was God's design that a man bear the hard roles. I want to say to all the men here, don't you ever cop out on your wife or your kids and sit in your couch or your chair with your remote and hope that somebody leads your family to God. Turn the TV off, lay down the remote, pick up the Bible, and discipline yourself, first of all, and then involve your family in seeking God. That's hard. Well, welcome to being a man. Whatever it is you're facing with your family, muster up the courage and the boldness to face it and deal with it. That's what being a man is all about. Say like Joshua did. As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. And I, I'll be honest with you, I am a traditionalist in a lot of ways. I believe you ought to take your kids to church with you. I think families ought to be at church together. I'm not a real fan of saying, well, you know, when they're 15, they can go where they want to go. I'm not saying it's a sin. It's probably a preference issue, but on a personal level, 
uh, I think families are really important. And I think they ought to go together and worship together and seek God together. And you know where that starts? It starts with the head of the home, the man. You know, the church has an interesting facade. We look real strong on the outside, but get inside and you'll be surprised how feminine a lot of us really are. I'm not talking about, you know, in our society, we all, you know, manliness is the muscles and the, which I don't have any of. I mean, you know, and if that's what being a man is, I'm out of the picture. I'm not tall. I'm not dark. I'm not handsome. I've not got big biceps. But you know, in God's eyes, being a man is having the ability to accept your responsibilities under God's authority, deal with them, and raise a godly heritage. That's why I say to you, you can go work out the why all you want. You can run 15 miles a day. You can pump iron and go to work and make a million dollars. But until you meet God's measurement of a man, we're still way too feminine. Men, be bold in how you lead your families. You can also be bold in another area, and that is how you talk about the cross. You realize that Paul says the cross is a stumbling block and a fence. We're in a day in which it's not PC to, to just simply say that men are sinners, women are sinners, and you cannot redeem yourself. You need a God who came in the form of Jesus Christ to save your soul. But that's the truth of the Word of God. And when the cross becomes non-offensive, I'm not sure it's the cross anymore. In fact, the cross is designed to get to the root of your problem, your pride, your own self-sufficiency. The cross is designed to help you realize you don't have anything to offer God. Nothing! You are totally helpless. Now, that's not PC, is it? You cannot be saved until you are lost. And the cross is designed to help you see just how lost you really are. Why would a God do that? Send a son as a baby. Live a life and then die as a martyr, so to speak. A bloody massacre. An inhumane crucifixion. Because he loves you enough to give you an opportunity to go to heaven. If you'd only believe. And some of you here this morning, perhaps have believed the lies of society. You're confident that you're good enough. You're just sure that, you know what, God's going to see what I've done. But I want to tell you something. That grace is a completely free gift. And God offers it to those who simply believe. You couldn't be good enough again or bad enough to stay out. I'd be wrong not to be bold with you about the gospel. And you're wrong not to be bold about it with your friends and neighbors. Well, you know, Joe, just keep trying. I'm sure you'll do okay. I won't do okay. If Joe's lost, he needs Jesus. He needs to believe by faith in the cross. as his only way to heaven. When that happens, God will change Joe's life. Don and Connie are sitting back there. They've been coming for a number of weeks. They were saved 25, 26 years ago, something like that, 30 years ago. They were attending a, a Baptist church here in Des Moines many years ago. And they got saved while they were attending that church in some other, uh, through another individual. And I remember Don telling me this week, he went to that pastor. This is back when I was a kid, you know, seven years old, I guess. He said, hey, why didn't you tell me this? 
And the pastor said to him, Don, i got to feed my family. And you think it's just bad today. That was 30 years ago, 25 years ago. He said, Don, I couldn't preach that. I need a job. Well, you shouldn't need a job that bad. And I don't and you don't. And so we say here very unapologetically and unashamedly, the only way to heaven is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you've not believed and had Christ atone for your sins, I invite you this morning to ask Jesus to be your personal Savior and begin a relationship with Him through the cross of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, um, Bethany was taking the Iowa test of basic skills. And you know, I talk about my kids and my family because that's really all I know. I'm not trying to brag or, I mean, I don't really know your family, so forgive me. But she was taking this Iowa test and she came to a question on there. said, how many people do you, th- do you think saw dinosaurs? Zero, ten, one hundred, or a thousand. And of course, with your number two lead pencil, you're to circle in the dot. You know how that goes, right? And so um, she lit it. She got up and she went to her teacher, wonderful teacher too. She said, "Miss Dixon, um, I have a problem with this question. Um, I know I'll probably get it wrong, but in our family, uh, we think God made dinosaurs, and so probably uh, Adam and Eve saw them. And uh, I know my dad told me a verse where Job saw some, and so the Bible says probably less than ten. But I know I'll probably get that wrong with this paper. Is that a great story?" I mean, still, I was like, man, God, can I just have an ounce of that boldness? She didn't care a bit if it got wrong or what the teacher thought. She wanted to make sure she knew, though, I'm going to put down what's right. Is that okay with you? See, that's where boldness really matters. Boy, I learned a lot from my kids, you know. I remember just crying and thinking to myself, oh, God, I, I'm so timid. I'm so afraid to speak the truth. Why aren't you more bold? Why aren't you more bold in your witness, in your walk with Christ? Why aren't you praying against people and institutions that thwart God's purposes? Why aren't you passionately pleading with those nearest you to live for God? I think the root reason is this. You don't really know God yet. God, you shouldn't be that mean to us. Remember the definition of boldness? When you know the character, work, and person of God, the Word of God, then you, that determines your actions. Otherwise, you let other folks control your reactions. I want to say to you that when you lack boldness, it's because you're not sure what your daddy would do about it. You don't know him well enough. This morning when you leave here, I want you to make one simple decision. Get to know God better. That's today's action point. Some of you need to read your Bible more. You do. Don't glare at me. You need to read your Bible more. That's where God reveals who He is and what He does. Read it. You'll increase your boldness. Some of you need to pray more. Some of you need to pray, period. You know, praying over the food is probably okay, but that's not the idea behind pray without ceasing. A lifestyle of communication with God would increase your boldness. You wouldn't believe it. But some of you don't talk to God until at night and you're just about wiped out and you're beat up and you're just feeling so tired. 
You throw yourself into bed and hope God understands, and you wonder why you lack boldness when you get up. Some of you approach your growth the same way. You come here, sit in this chair, and you hope that uh, you'll grow. You don't pursue discipleship with any kind of intentionality at all. I challenge you to get involved in a discipling relationship. Let one of us know. Get involved in a focus group. Do something beyond your comfort zone to get to know God. That's the way to increase boldness. You say, well, Todd, I'm not even sure I even know who God is at all. That I invite you to do the one thing that can make the biggest difference. Is trust Him by faith this morning and become what we call a believer. And I boldly announce to you and proclaim to you that Jesus Christ and His work on Calvary is the only way to heaven. When you believe by faith in Him, you become one of His children. And you can say, Daddy, for the rest of your life. And as you get to know Him, that will embolden you to live out His purposes in this world.